Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Let's give a warm round of applause to this uh, program at Otis. First of all, I would like to take this chance to welcome all of you to the first ever Otis graduate book reading at Skylight. Clap, applause, yay! This is a big deal for us, and it means so much to have you in attendance supporting our writers and students. A special thank you to David and Carrie, and for Peter for helping coordinate all this. We're in for some really good stories and poems, guys. Now let's get started. California native Sarah Danielle Dickerson is a writer whose biggest influences are Joan Didion, Kendrick Lamar, Frida Kahlo, and Angela Davis. After earning an MFA, she intends to spend a year creating and exploring all manner of internal and external wilderness. She is editor-in-chief of Revel Empire, a digital publication founded on a belief in collaborative creativity as a revolutionary act. And her audio chapbook, Invisibly Wounded Adult-Sized Children, will be released digitally and in print this summer. Sounds awesome. Let's all give a hand for Danielle. Hello. I'm short. This, you can hear me, right? It's all good? Okay. <laughs> so this is a poem I wrote called Blue Black. Um, I've never performed poetry in front of people before, so this should be interesting. Okay. <clears throat> Blue Black. There's a lot of people who would love to feel needed by you. But no one does. No one does. Why is that? It's like matter doesn't matter to you or something. What's up with that? It's like, are you here or not? I mean, really. The others say you're like a magical creature, an alien, an apparition or something, all of which say immaterial, unreal, intangible. No one can tell if you're happening or not. Not even you. What's up with that? You say atoms are mostly empty, like that doesn't include you, I mean really. Like, if you were a hue, it'd be singularity blue. There's a lot of people waiting for you to show up, but you never do, what's up with that? It's like you can't decide whether to happen or not, so you live suspended between maybe, and I guess we'll never know. What's that about? It's almost like you decided young to pay for your crimes with the passage of time or something. It's like seconds, minutes, hours, days beneath your body bag skin mean nothing to you. Can you explain yourself? From the hospital bed, you said, back like I never left, trapped like I'm here till death. And we laughed along with you, but really, I mean, do you understand what it's like to love something so willfully temporary? I mean, how is that even possible? You talk about autogenocide like society is happening inside you, like you couldn't have kids if you tried to. You wouldn't have kids, though you want to. 
You're scared the blue will confront you? I mean, you take each body to heart like black blood doesn't make the blue kind. And you haven't known that this whole time. Your family mentions hospitals, and the first thing through your mind is, damn, another black girl out here institutionalized. It's like you're not just something, but something else. And I hope you're happy all by yourself in the solitude you crave. External life is a charade, you say, and that's weird. But I really hope you mean it, because like, the line between creation and destruction is so thin, and yet it's where you've made your whole home. The hardest part of growing up is that, well, it can't be done alone. Somehow you always find yourself doing way more than enough, so I guess it's just in your nature to almost self-destruct. A life without light is unsustainable. Who knows that better than we, too? You say you feel like an alien, and your home is phoning you. I've heard feeling scared and being sacred go hand in hand, so I guess just settle into your body and wait to understand. Thank you. Tess Satsuma is writing a novel about Waikiki. She is influenced by movie soundtracks, water, disaster predictions, and bus travel. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'm going to read um, a chapter from that Waikiki novel. Um, the chapter is called Dream Current. From above, her home formed an open clam, facing the sea and swallowing guests or boats or gusts of both. Breaths of butter, breaths of petals rising and falling, her home carried her to her home. Limousines, cabs, rentals, and trolleys sputtering up guests to and from hotel and airport like clockwork. Chi could hear her home's ticking. It sounded like lacquered shells spilling over glass. It sounded like the music Mirabelle, her mother, applauded most when the valets were on task. Jim, her grandfather, liked to say, Chop suey, chop suey, when his workers were too slow. But to Chi, the slower the day, the happier everyone's mood. The mundane was elegance and lullaby as Chi levitated over the lobby like stray pollen. The lobby where footprints traveled over 80-year-old floorboards. Chi exhaled a lazy petal. For every day, hundreds of feet augmented her home by pressing into it carpets and decoa and their body odors that in Chi's waking life dripped down rose up to meet her. She inhaled and a bouquet of bees led Chi to the Regency rooms where dignified guests poured muted claps into their empty glasses. Hairspray and articulated sentences elongated the room so much that the governor's podium stance and heel claps led her employees to realize another beak-faced, ghost-skinned ruler had fronted their mission and home. She left the refrigerated gathering for the coconut grove, a grassy, palm-shaded hideout behind the shopping plaza. She used to hula here. 
She attracted a good enough audience that her grandfather began to charge people by the minute. Now she only saw the grove as a dark nostril, a face buried beneath the mud. The tower and loft suites saw more sun than the coconut grove. Ocean ogling lovers unraveling the beds many thousands of times see the maids reconstructing the sheets, washing away evidence that cities of legs and arms and teeth loved and made love. Beneath the lanai's of the, these lovers, the royal pool, the, its round, child-safe depth, quite boring, until she found her own child self wave up at her. Come down and play, she seemed to say, splashing and rejoicing in the chlorine and summer and mint before fountaining up a silver pearl to meet Chi's nose, before cackling and bubbling into a ball of blood. Morning bells signaled the daily fish auctions at the Azure Room and Surf Lanai. The fishermen ignored the bells and only listened to their catch, breathing. A luncheon stop, the Surf Lanai helped visitors claim non-chain fries and burgers back into their guts. Chili oil ketchup and halpia cake gave it a touch of necessary aloha. And inside the burgers, the fish continued to breathe as the tourists ate them. And she's still floating. Paper cocktail umbrellas blooming, birthing more paper cocktail umbrellas as the Mai Tai Bar employees walked backwards towards the lobby elevator garage where ice cubes could be heard rattling in their sore mouths, so empty of grins, so tired of orange concubine rum and syrup and pineapple drowned the the customers. She flushed the stink of their bones and wastes, washing them off as she exhaled. On the ground, she saw only her father and mother holding hands across a table, a green mint string of floss stretched from mouth to mouth. She touched the floss between her parents, taut grins. Coral beds crawled into her fingertips, so she blew up her lungs and breath-stroked through the air until the ocean lawn sat well-groomed and full of brides beneath her. So many brides lifting up so many veils to their lovers, to the cameras, to the sight of Waikiki's lazy, low-eyed waves. So many sunsets repeated the orange splotch of pattern, not glow. The crowns, the sun on the public kiss. She hovered over the monarch room with curtained stage and gold-plated chandeliers, glass windows oblong and clear of salt dust, a new carpet, a tonally shiftless sand, this cold forever world, and her grandfather on the monarch room stage, his urn, her grandmother in his lap. He looked for a butterfly, but spotted his granddaughter instead. No hellos or waves as he lit up a peppermint candy cane with a match. The pinkest fire, pinker than the royal H itself, burned from the match's tip like a sea anemone in unqualifiable agony. She began to fall as the smoke rose. He exhaled again, and she moved on to the next dream. Thank you.
Josh Hardin was born in Concord, Massachusetts and attended Phillips Academy and Princeton University before getting his MFA at Otis. He also has a screenwriting certificate from UCLA. For 10 years, Josh has worked as a producer in reality television and his first novel is a dark and comic take on what it's like to peek behind the curtain of America's most watched programming. Josh has already begun to fear the moment when he's taken the task for the TV he's made by his young daughter who is just six weeks old. Luckily, he has a little time to formulate his defense. All right, so um, I'm reading from chapter six, so I've got to do a little bit of setup. Um, my main character is named Jack. The story is told from his perspective. He's not telling the story, but the reader kind of experiences the story uh, along with him. Uh, Karen is his boss on the show. She's the showrunner. And um, there's a couple other characters. Seth is a co-executive co producer. There's Lionel, who's a line producer. He controls the budget. You don't have to really remember all this. I'm just kind of orienting you. Brandon is a story producer. Charlotte is a talent producer. Um, and then the other thing is that I'm going to be discussing, or they're going to be discussing, the content of the actual show, which is a fictional show called Seeking Cinderella. And the star of the show is a young man named Conrad, and he's in love with a woman named Emily. Um, also going to be discussed in this little piece are Scott and Marianne, who are on the show, and they're kind of like sidekicks uh, to Conrad and Emily. So, All right. <clears throat> Episode 102 rated a 3.45, far better than anyone had dared to expect, and up from the premiere. But the, but the news did little to liven the spirits of Karen, who was locked in battle with her own hatred of episode 104, even as the window of time was closing, when she could still do anything about it. 103 had been labeled and shipped to the RTV Central Command Station somewhere in Ohio, and they were mixing and coloring 104, while, according to Lionel's calendar, Karen was supposed to be finalizing notes on 105. Yet when the 102 ratings came in, it only seemed to make Karen bolder in her conviction that 104 was what she called goose turds. It had gone exactly as Seth had warned her it couldn't. They'd planned and shot a fairly elaborate B story involving Scott's pursuit of Marianne. Yet as it came together in the edit, Karen found it to be lifeless, channel-changing crap. Now it was Tuesday, too late to shoot anything new to make a tent pole of their midpoint. All they could do was color it and mix it, polishing the goose turd. On Monday, Karen had opted to take Tuesday off from shooting. Even if there had been something great happening in the lives of Conrad or Emily, or even Sal, who's Conrad's dad, which there wasn't, it wouldn't be ready to cut until late Wednesday, realistically. Then, it would take until Thursday night to reach a rough cut, and they'd have to fuck with it on Friday, tweaking frames this way and that, pre-lapping audio and massaging edits in a process that always took longer than you'd think. Then, best case, they'd have to mix and color over the weekend to make a Monday delivery. Why do we even have to deliver it a week in advance, Karen had asked Lionel, whom she'd used the phone to summon up the stairs for the purpose of asking this, when she could have easily asked over the phone. Can't we buy some wiggle room there? It doesn't air for two weeks. Buy is the operative word there, Lionel said. We can get around delivery penalty, but if we have to fiber feed the show, you're paying for bandwidth at that point, and it's extremely expensive. In my experience, that's not a cost the network is willing to bear. 
which means it would have to come out of our production budget. I'd hate to have to take it out of the music budget, unless you want to play 105 with just Nat's sound throughout. Fuck this, Karen had said. Fuck it. She put her hand down on the table in a gesture of either mock anger or anger. Jack couldn't tell. That had been yesterday, and she was still brooding today. Same position, different wardrobe. During a special story meeting, she had called to discuss where they were headed for the end of the season. Episode 104 was the halfway point, and it was time to work towards a crescendo. Look, she said, I'm not going to blame anyone for this Scott and Marianne garbage story, except for maybe Scott. Ha. I sat here just like everyone else, and against my better judgment, I allowed us to go out and shoot that story. But we all need to learn from this. We might be able to get by with one floater episode, but not two. We need to step it up. ASAP. Outside the sky roiled with dark clouds for once. Karen looked up at the foam boards delineating the conference area, where the finished episodes 101, 102, 103, and 104 were cast in a pleasingly uniform green of index cards, while episodes 105 through 108 were spotted with yellow, green, and pink cards. That's why, Karen continued, I was hoping to save this for season two, but now I'm worried we might not get a season two if we don't do anything about it, so I want to push for a Vegas wedding in eight. We make that a two-part episode starting in seven. That means all we have to do is cast a boyfriend for Marianne in six and see if we can sign Emily's mother for five. I don't think Emily is going to give you her mother, said Charlotte. I will get Emily's mother myself, even if I have to go to the fucking casino and look around at slot machines for wherever she is, Karen said. Sorry, I just think Emily will be really mad, said Charlotte. We're making a show about her life, Karen said. She needs to understand all this can go away. All these designers sending her clothes, this Glam City contract she just signed, the magazine covers and the makeup sponsorship, does she like that stuff? Because all that stuff can go away. We have exclusivity based on what she signed with us, so all that other shit is at our discretion. And besides, she's not that special. We found her, we can find someone else. This didn't seem true to Jack. Emily was too special to Conrad. Conrad was too special himself, wasn't he? Jack had come to know Karen did this, a form of posturing in which she employed hyperbole for rhetorical force, but today there was an edge to it Jack didn't recognize. Give me her number, Karen said. Who, Emily? No, dummy, I have Emily's number, the mother. Let me see if I have it. Charlotte looked through her phone, stalling. Jack knew. If I have to use that freaking private investigator from last, last week's episode, I will. Okay, episode six. I want to see options by the end of the week. Thursday, let's say, Brandon, Charlotte, past boyfriends is a good place to start. We'll put people on tape if we have to. Um, Brandon piped up timidly. What happened to Scott? I haven't heard. Did he do something or... He's done, said Seth with ominous terseness. He's just not good TV, Karen said. He can still do scenes with Conrad. He's just not his own character. No one is going to believe that Marianne would go for him. Jack was jarred by this news. But Marianne had gone for him, he wanted to say. Some days they would follow or play something just because it happened that way. Now here was something that really had happened, but Karen felt it wouldn't be believed to have happened. It wouldn't be believed to have happened, and so she wouldn't allow it. How had Karen turned on Scott so thoroughly? Jack wasn't routinely invited into the edit, and he took the news as a fan might have, with disappointment. But he wasn't just a fan, and thus the news also made him angry a little. It was not uncommon for Karen to arrive so forcefully and instinctually at an opinion like this, as though she'd uncovered something in herself that had always been there. But it was the first time she'd X'd out a core cast member. 
Maybe we could write him off, the always calm Brandon suggested. I'm just worried it won't track if he disappears all of a sudden. Maybe he could do something beyond the pale and Conrad could kick him to the curb. It's just a big beat to happen off camera. Shit happens off camera all the time. That's life, said Karen. I actually think an off-camera beat can be powerful or mysterious. Add tension, said Seth. But more importantly, Scott just kind of has the stink on him right now. We should probably just move on. Wait, so are you serious about a Vegas wedding? Jack asked, changing the subject, still irritated. I always thought that pink card was kind of a joke. Yes, Lionel is clearing wedding chapels, Karen said. Does that really track? Jack asked. Stop saying that. Stop saying if something tracks. I hate it when people say that, Karen said. Everyone says that like it means something smart, but it's so fucking annoying. It's like a code word or something. I'm sorry, Jack said, feeling defensive. I just meant, is that something Emily would do? It's up to us, Karen said. If it doesn't track, we need to make it track. It's your fucking job to make it track. If you have to go downstairs, Jack, and miss out on these meetings and sit at the fucking machine and go through every piece of footage we've ever shot to find little pieces here and there to help us tell the story so it fucking tracks, that's fine with me. We can do these meetings without you. Jack knew better than to push back, but it took monstrous resolve to keep his mouth shut, and he burned from the effort. Had he really thought they were telling a true story here? Could it have been true anyway that Emily would marry Conrad, if not for episode 108, then in some impulsive way, without the cameras? Does Emily even want to get married? He could ask Charlotte later, if, but, uh, he could ask Charlotte later, though this would mean having a private confidence with her, which he'd been trying to avoid since they'd slept together. He told her it was a mistake, before and after, that they shouldn't have done it. He didn't want to jeopardize their working relationship, etc. And she'd been cool about it, had even agreed somewhat readily, Jack thought, though from the persistence of her texts, he worried he would have to freeze her out over time. To try and break up with her straight out would only make him look foolish. He didn't break up before there'd even been a relationship-defining conversation. All we did was sleep together, she would say. Don't kid yourself. Maybe it was because a woman had to let you cross her threshold, Jack thought, that it was easier for a man to move on without caring, like leaving a room. Understood, Karen was asking him. Yes, of course, Jack said, trying not to look frustrated. Okay, so this week, Karen said, as if nothing had happened, Emily finds out about Sal's ultimatum. Brandon, grab that card from 107 and move it up to 105. Let's talk about what that would do to 106. That's it. Eunice Kim received her MFA from Otis College of Art and Design and her BA from Amherst. In her free time, she likes playing jazz, making jewelry, and creating art out of anything recycled. A New York native, she is currently living in Los Angeles with her pet turtle, Soren, who is about 10 years older than she is. Together, they have produced writing that strives for a balance of spirituality and melodrama. Okay, so I'm going to be reading from chapter 8 of my novel. Um, and, yeah, I guess I, there's not really much background needed except that the narrator is in love and, yeah, and they're having a conversation. So, okay. You're afraid you'll enjoy this too much, she said while rubbing my back. You're afraid you'll start expecting everyone else to view you the way I do. 
I groaned and rolled onto my back, covering the lower half of my face with one of the blankets to feel the warmth of my breath bathing my face. My favorite blanket in the house was starchy and thin and had pastel-colored hexagons on it. I stared at the ceiling and kept my eyes open to dry them. Yuri waved her hand over my face. Hey, you, I'm still here. You're right. I'm afraid of enjoying this too much. You're the real sidekick, not me. She stuffed a piece of paper into the pocket of my shorts. You're good at writing, I said. Are you a writer? I think I have a good hand at it, she said, not really meaning it, but saying it for the sake of just saying it. But I don't have any stories to tell. Tell me a story. I lightly tapped my forehead with my hand, which was a habit I had whenever I wanted to focus, sorted through my mind, and told her the most recent story I'd come up with. Once upon a time, there were two twin sisters. Their names are Anyone and Anywhere. When they were old enough to think for themselves, they flew to America and tried to seek their fortunes and fames. However, once they arrived, they had no homes, so Anyone thought the easiest way would be to just marry a man who had an American citizenship. The only man who was willing to marry her agreed to marry her, but only if anywhere lived in the same house with them, so he could have her too, because they were both equally beautiful. What? He's disgusting. Is this a true story? Because if it is, I want to find him and pound some sense into him, and when I'm done with that, I'll kill him. I'm sure all 100 pounds of you will be enough to take him down. You just had to bring reality into this, didn't you? Yes, for your sake, I will make him weigh that much. Really? Then how am I supposed to hate him if he's anorexic? He's not. He just has no brain mass. She poked my stomach and I had to laugh. Her hand was silver nail polish resting on my lilac t-shirt. I'm 120 now, thank you very much, she said. Still 10 pounds less than me. I'm trying, damn it. Anyway, the sisters thought so too. They thought he was a disgusting beast. But because they had nowhere to stay, they agreed to the plan. The three of them lived together... But because Anywhere was never home, because she wanted to avoid her brother-in-law, people began to think the two sisters were one person. One day, Anyone and Anywhere bought a gun to kill the husband with. Anywhere decided to go to a Starbucks nearby on the day of the murder so that Anyone could shoot her husband and have an alibi to give to the police. On the day of the murder, Anyone took her husband to an alley and shot him near a dumpster. When the police came to the house, Anyone hid in the grandfather clock. Pretending to be anyone, Anywhere came home and told the police that she had been at a Starbucks and that both her sister and husband hadn't come home for a long time. So the police went out to look for Anywhere. Because of the police, the two sisters were never outside of the house at the same time because they both had to identify themselves as anyone. They continued to do this for so long that when they both died as old women, they were both reborn as the same person. Anyone was the person's mind, and anywhere controlled the person's heart. Every time they are reborn together, the person is whole. Every time they are reborn separately, the two persons must find each other to be truly happy. This time, it was Yuri's turn to stare at me wide-eyed. That's beautiful, she said. That makes so much fucking sense. The cursing made me feel uncomfortable, and I told her so. But instead of apologizing, she tickled me on my stomach area and kept doing it until I ran out of breath and tried to grab her hand and bite it to make her stop. Why was I so happy when I hated my life? Maybe the most frightening reality was happening, which was that this happiness was sufficient for my whole life and that I didn't really hate my life. 
I was experiencing the greatest kind of beauty, which meant that I could never really complain about anything for the rest of my life, because by this point, I couldn't really think of anything to feel sorry for myself about. I, the girl whose only virtue was having ten fingers and ten toes. It would, of course, be a horribly unjust and illegal thing to happen if I were to complain after this. I was more afraid of happiness than of the possibility of Mr. Lee ever finding out about us. When it came to him finding out, what filled me was excitement. Heat gushed through my fingers and burned the ends of my hair when I thought about it. I was the heroine in my own story. I had a small silver gun on my lap waiting to be used. When would I be summoned by my enemies to tell them that nothing they ever did to me affected me all that much? When their depressed-looking faces turned to stare at me, I wouldn't even make eye contact with them because I'd be busy looking at my own vast horizon beyond the window. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention this, but the character is 16 years old, so this is why she talks like a teenager. Um, Anyway, so, exhausted afterwards, we fell asleep shoulder to shoulder. When I woke up, the sun was rising, and Yuri was already sitting up, hugging her knees and looking outside. The room was still dark, and the bed, night table, and everything else in the room was grayed and given a warm kind of familiarity. My My vision a bit fuzzy from sleepiness. The only thing I could really see and I saw it with shocking clarity, was the part of her face that was lit by the dimly piercing light of the rising sun through the rectangular window. In other words, she was illuminated in every detail, even the subtle premature wrinkles and misty unevenness, particular to grown-up women's faces without makeup on, was given both beauty and banality. A fraction of an eye was lit, and she seemed entirely transfigured by this. She was gazing at the sun, and the reflection in her eyes betrayed it all. Thoughts began to flood my body and overpower me as I took in the emotions behind each curve in her posture and each twitch of her eye. Like a statue on the beach that stands its ground to look upon the sun emerging, she looked at the sun burning down upon and basking in the horizon made from the rooftops of buildings, thrusting its rays ignobly into every living thing in sight, coming closer and closer to life like an egg a pure white blot that floated outside like a colorless eye with flaming shafts of energy and hunger. Her face shone brighter with each second, and her eyes refused to look away. She was relating the sunrise to herself, or something that had happened to her, squinting, taunting the day, wondering if nothing would happen to her, if anything would happen to her, if what she had lost would come back to her, asking the sun what it brought. Her head slightly tilted in expectancy towards the object of her focus, like a dog asking its master when its meal will come. Growing brightness, growing faster. Eyes must ache by now but want an answer because all you had to do to give up and die at this moment was to close your eyes when the misery became too much to handle. But we were already dead and just playing along with the living, and we could always choose to blame the people who bore us without our asking. As for Yuri, she blamed the sun for sustaining this evil earth. She sighed and sank back onto the bed, satisfied with the silence she had received as an answer. In moments like these, not a single being on earth is in pain. If you skin a dog alive, saw a man in two, cook a live fish, or cut off a woman's limbs, the victims won't feel it, but just look at you and laugh. Not to mock your efforts, but because you are just as powerless as they are to the knife, to the falling stone, to the strangling hand. Physical pain is obliterated in moments of suffering, because that is the last mercy from heaven. Then and only then is the world as it should be. Thank you.
Taylor McDaniel grew up in Louisiana, where he earned his BA in English from Louisiana State University. His poetry has appeared in Vitrine, a printed museum, and Smoking Glue Gun Magazine, among others, and is forthcoming in Bat City Review. Taylor is currently an MFA writing candidate at, you guessed it, Otis College of Art and Design. <laughs> Thank you, Emily. Yeah, I realize I should have probably left that out. It's kind of obvious. Um, thank you, Skylight, for having us. And thanks for the introduction. Thank you, for Peter, for sort of hooking this up for us. Um, I'm going to begin by reading a poem by Rachel Burns. She sent me this poem back in October, November, and asked me to respond to it. So I'm going to read hers and then the response, and then a couple more poems. All right. The Little Engine That Could Not Fucking Even. <laughs> When I misheard obsession as accessory, I put a midi ring on myself because my tenacity is staggering towards self-inflicted or fat. I want my incisor tipped in gold, like dripping in gold. BMI has always felt more geographical than ASL, like the only shenanigan in this world is deciphering depression from constipation and getting off on the malapropism of loving everything excessively capable of movement. My emotional range is between isolated and asking for it. When I skip over water, it's all but godlike, crushing oysters in my mouth. I skip across the water with clumsy body erotica, vain autotithesis. The wideness of my body isn't a lovely finish styled in jeweled tone furs, and it's really harshing my winter pastels. Is it wrong to feel violated by others demanding to feel emotion from your body when they've no idea? When the comparison feels intrusive, is it wrong to feel entitled to bodily solitude emotionally? Am I asking for it from the outside, physically, I mean? I want my mouth to be a carnival in the grossest way, like deep throat a churro and gag on accident kind of way, because being blonde isn't saving me. The movie is ending poorly, and I'm watching cheer... Cheer dwindle. Rachel, your body is triggering. Rachel, you're such an ice queen. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Thank you, sir. Is this tragic for Rachel Burns? Is this tragic? Would this make me look fat? Is this tragic? Would Kylie Jenner wear this? Is this tragic? Will this show off my nipples? What time is it in Florida? I think sheer might be my favorite color. Sigh. My armpits are so gross, and the spaghetti strap is back. Tragic. Can you help me pick a filter? Can you help me with the caption? Too blessed to get dressed? Is that tragic? I'd be okay if I never saw another French Manny in my life. Do you ever call your mom? What time is it in Washington? I want to do porn, but my parents are still alive. Is this tragic? I'm sad. What's so extra about extra small anyway. I hear the bikini bridge is the new thigh gap. What the fuck is a bikini bridge? Do good collarbones not count for anything these days? I want to stick my fingers down my throat, but my nails might still be wet. How tragic. Do you think I can pull off iridescence? What time is it? <laughs> That's my response. Okay. This poem is called Confessions. I'll probably blog until I die. If you ever hear a blood-curdling scream coming from my apartment, it's because the internet dropped out. It's my life goal to be followed by a famous person. Lana Del Rey could literally saw my leg off with a dull knife, and I would thank her for noticing me. I think flip phones are on, that, are, are on the verge of being cool again. I used to believe in the Illuminati, and sometimes I still do. I don't want to sleep with you. I just want to give you a makeover. It annoys me when guys are like, why can't I ever get a boyfriend? But then someone asks them out, and they're like, no. Like, why are you complaining then? I want to shrink... <laughs> 
I want to shrink myself so small that I can take a nap in Paris Hilton's hair. Last night, I ordered a pizza, and in the delivery instructions, I wrote, send hottest delivery guy. But he was like 40, K. <laughs> One time I was playing with the Ouija board and it said I would be famous by age 27. One time I asked that same Ouija board if, it, if there was anyone dead in the house and it kept spelling my name, but I don't know, my name is pretty common to be honest. <laughs> and now since we are all graduating in two weeks, exciting, I will read a little bit from my thesis, two poems. Uh, what you need to know, thesis is titled Nail Polish Poems and each poem in the thesis is a name of an OPI nail polish, and then each line in the poem is an anagram of that title. So the first one is Pussy Galore. Rosy plagues, guess or play, glue or spays, sourly gapes, splays rouge, real guys sop, sugary poles, slayers go up, sugary slope, a yes or gulp, seal gory pus, a rosy leg pus, a leg so syrup, a leg or pussy, a gel or pussy, a gel so syrup. And then this last one is called I'm Not Really a Waitress. I'm a really resistant owl. I'm a really wet arsonist. I'm aware it's really snot. I am literal tawny sores. I am yellow as restraint. I'm a twins teaser orally. I'm a swine's treat orally. I'm a sweet strain orally. I'm a torn easy stairwell. I am one stray stairwell. I am entrails, two layers. I am, alas, entirely worst. Thanks, guys. John Pesson has lived in Los Angeles for his whole life. He earned his BA and MA in English at CSUN and will complete his MFA in writing at Otis College. His work is always strange and queer and has appeared in Used Gravitrons, The Sigma Tau Rectangle, the new short fiction series, and Interfictions Online. Me. Thank you, everybody, who put this together. <laughs> uh, so, this is a story called Snake Charmed. The wife of a snake may say, It's hard to be married to a snake, what with their shedding and all, and constant lose, or constantly losing their recognizable faces and becoming larger in doing so. This is a stranger, the wife of a, fake, uh, a snake may say, waking to find her husband groggily peeling off one face for another. This is the not the one I married the wife of a snake may say. He can't even wear my wedding ring anymore. This snake prefers the gold bands already strapping his body, bands that while elastic are as shiftless and as cold uh, as he is, the wife of a snake may say. The world may exclaim, a husband who grows bigger every day sounds like a dream, like the needs are fulfilled, if you know what I mean, the world may say. And those outsiders would not know that they live in a world growing smaller every day. This is not my husband, the wife uh, may shout, but the world would be too busy speculating. He just grows and grows, and his body is ribbed, obviously for her pleasure, the world may say. They may look to the giant who slithers through the front door during an afternoon tea with envy. 
Watch him as he hangs one of his many feathered fedoras, as he leaves the earshot uh, of the conversation through the door to the kitchen, the wife's friends may lean towards their matrimonious host and through a greedy smile ask how, his, or how is he really, though, which may or may not leave the wife totally flabbergasted, as it will confirm for her that her company was not paying any attention to the problems she was so desperately seeking counsel for. I have a theory, a personal pocket theory a friend may offer in an email. If you chop off your husband's head and jump over a freshly cut log, you may have your marriage terminated if your years spent in wedlock are fewer than the rings of the hewn tree's trunk. If the wife lives in a forest ancient and verdant, this may be hard. It may be many years after the death that such a tree could be found, cleaved and traversed. This is not a helpful solution, the wife may retort, uh, though she may be even more dismayed if in the postscript of the email her distant friend sent, they may also request a current photo of her husband, you know, just to get an accurate picture of the situation. The wife can describe the horrors of being married to a beast, and perhaps it will be mistaken every time for something more palatable. Her friends may always picture the most dramatic covers of romance novels when she pulls out a drawer uh, too low to use comfortably, a surprising number of torn blouses, or when the wife describes how her heavy or how her heavy bosom was heaving when her husband, the snake, threw her down on the floor. It was frightening, she may confess, because she knows she cannot trust him anymore. She, when the events are particularly violent, may even ask her friends to stay over at their places, just for a little while, just so that she can figure things out, and her friends may only respond by asking her to continue her descriptions. To appease the wife, her unhelpful friends may offer that the music uh, is what soothes the beast in many a monster. And this monstrosity of hers may be more or less a monster, a giant snake, but it is her husband regardless. And this may often be a problem. And snakes have a very low tolerance for music, they may insist. Just play him a song and he will sleep in that wicker basket that he sleeps in instead of sharing your bed. And the wife may try it one day, or more than once. She may put on her record player a vinyl uh, record, or on an audio file on her wireless speakers, may sing herself while doing household chores, may, place an, or may play an oboe late into the night, and the vinyl may be snapped by the snake when he returns in a bad mood from a day of hard work at the office, and the wife may ask, what is it that's so hard about filling out forms and faxing memos all day, and her snake husband may say that it is so very hard, emotionally. It is emotionally draining, the snake may say. Digital music may be hard on the snake's elitist tastes, as he reminds the wife that binary sound encryption is inferior at mapping out the curves of music, and her underdeveloped hearing (laughs) may or may not be able to tell the distinctions as his can. The inferiority, he may say with great hostility, gives him an infuriating headache. The wife's voice is no better than electronic impressions of authentic music, he may tell her, as she is doing his laundry or washing the dishes by hand, because the dishwasher is always broken from being slammed into, or when the wife may be working old skins and tending to his collection of fedoras. Someone may ask why the wife is in need of fleeing from her scaly husband, or in need of a scaly husband, and the wife may have specific answers, or answers that are more personal, more generalized, and it is all of these answers that will never hold up to scrutiny. It doesn't matter how venomous the snake is, nor how cold-blooded, nor how constricting, nor how all-consuming, nor how backstabbing, nor how secretive, nor how slick. 
The wife is always the failure, the snake has always forked tongues, and the wife should have always known better than to make this bed she now stays in. There are no peach trees to tend to when the world, uh, when the switch shackle keeps her breath beneath the covers. The world has always known that the snake was a mistake, and it is one mistake that it's hard to undo. After all, they of the world may say, doesn't he need you to function, the world may say. And the wife, confused, may say that he doesn't need her as much as she would like to be free, that the impulse coils back on itself. And the world may say, but you don't benefit from being with him. And the wife may say that you stand in awe of the world, and the wife may rattle. You would not ask for your loved ones to be constantly snaked, the wife of a snake may say. You would not hold up a snake as desirable. And yet, when the world goes out for drinks and calls in the middle of the night, they call for the snake. They call for the feathered fedora. They call for the fun time. They call the good evening. They call everyone but the wife. He must receive the snake's unwanted declarations and unwanted bites and unwanted hisses and unwanted kisses. The wife of a snake may say to her husband, you are all fangs. She may say this in broken mirrors to the telephone operator, may say this in necrotic welts and discarded banana peels to the garbage men. The snake husband of a wife may remain static. A writer from Los Angeles, Justin Evans, is forever fretting and fussing. He writes mainly prose and has a very large nose. That immigrant old fellow, Justin, has been published in journals like Bird's Thumb, The Point, and Santa Monica Review. He prefers walking the cars. His first novel, he is just now redrafting. Thank you. I didn't realize anyone was going to have to read that aloud, so... uh... My bad. Um, I'm going to read the first half of a story called If You Are Reading This, which is obviously a problem because you are not, but I am, and I want you to imagine that you are reading it, not listening to me read it. Um, It's available in the very recently published Santa Monica Review, so shameless plug, they probably have a copy here if somebody wants to try and buy it from them. If you like the first half, anyway, maybe you won't. If you are reading this, The novelist Yoon-hee Marx's manuscript was sent to Carl John Rowland with a note that read in part, Dear Mr. Rowland, when I was going through my sister's things after her death, I found a novel she'd written. Now, I'm not a reader, but I showed it to my cousin and he said it's really good and could be published and he suggested you because of some other books that he liked. I don't understand it, but just because I want to do something nice for her now, I I thought I'd send it to you. And Rowland was in a good mood, so he opened to the third page where a new paragraph began. Will you perform today? Yes, I will. Where? Well, I think here. Disrobing, standing on a stool, wearing only a mask, skin calm with the warmth of risk. But then the broken detachment of the observers writes a field of full stops across it. The usually hidden island of hair burrs in the void, created by their breaths caught in shock. Then they're let out. The unnaturally forceful exhalation pouring over the mask, under which a tattoo is half revealed. Across that, though under erasure, is still shod in Pentecostal flame flicks curls around earlobes and the sentence unreeling across the page and the next and the next, concluding only with an arrest for indecent exposure. And the reader, Roland, the only witness who can understand what the real indecency is, his body reacting first as did the artists, then as the observers, then again as the artists, page after page, his lungs 
hands cracking under the weight of unequal, uncertain breaths, unsure of where this woman was taking him, knowing he'd never read the like before, nothing so desperate, nothing so unlike anything else. He read the manuscript that night, then reread parts in the morning and sent a letter in reply. Thank you for sending me your late sister's MS. I am extremely impressed with her work, and I will be sending a copy to my partner here at Stellatum Press, Karen Reed. If she agrees with me, and I have no doubt that she will, I will have no hesitation publishing the book in our recent writers' series. We have published well-known Americans, such as Jackson Gibbons, and international authors, such as E.D. Nirigazi, in this series, as well as some important emerging writers like Magdalena Zelenka, and I am certain that our writers will value the experimentation and complexity of your sister's book. I would be very glad if you would send me more of her writing, if you have any, as well as any biographical information you can about her life, her work, the nature of her illness, and her philosophy of art and aesthetics. This will help us put the work you have sent us in a broader perspective. I hope to hear from you soon so we can start to make arrangements for the publication of your sister's truly remarkable novel. Carl John called Karen to tell her about his remarkable discovery, well, he should say revelation, since he'd done nothing to receive the pages, only photocopied them a dozen times, lest the first set be lost. And to ask her, had anything like this ever happened to her? Well, no. Nothing so remarkable as you're making it out to be, KJ. It sounds incredible. I'd love to read it. Send me a copy. No, wait. I'll be in the office in three days. No. I'll send it to you now. Read it. As soon as it arrives. The brother doesn't know what his sister was, which is... A true original, a talent, brilliant. He thinks she was sick and depressed, but it's, well, this is maybe the best thing I've ever seen by an unpublished author. I can't wait to hear back from you. Feel free to make copies for people over there, but keep it in-house. Nobody else would do it the right way, and what should I do in the meantime? And, if you are reading this, Karen told him that he should do some research on the woman immediately. Who was she? Where did she go to school? How did she die? And KJ spent the next day learning that Yoon Marks had gone to Barnard, then transferred to Chicago, obviously a very intelligent woman. But she still didn't seem to have graduated, or at least Chicago had no evidence that she did. He called and asked, and they were reticent, but looked her up and said, no, they had no records. After that, he found a blog. Fragments from the novel were posted there, some in rougher seeming drafts and some as they appeared in the manuscript, as well as abstract photographs and some collages she'd done, much more sophisticated than the photographs, incorporating text, cheesy paintings of forests with infant socks pinned to them, and on the socks written, left, in all biology, nothing of the egg and nothing of the pith. And on the right, what cosmology could really arrive at this problem? What solve it without resolution? Phrases he recognised from the end of the novel, and in place of the tree trunks, a couple of old rusted springs and washes tacked over what looked like the amateur's classic M-shaped birds. It was moving, disturbing, like the novel, but more light-hearted, as if she deliberately kept her prose in line by letting her irreverence out in this other art form, and he wondered what she might have done had she lived. He kept looking. She seemed to have worked at an insurance firm in Los Angeles, but only briefly, and otherwise all references to her came within the last year and a half. He reread his favourite passages from the book before bed, knowing that Karen would ring him the next day to tell him what he already knew. They must publish. This was a once-in-a-lifetime chance. He went to sleep knowing that tomorrow, after he set his phone down, he would close his eyes and smile, since something had finally happened to vindicate his years and years of editing light humour, ghost-written presidential policy blurbs, cheap-shot satire, books about writers, and, worst of all, books whose authors had literary pretensions but nothing to recommend them other than an allergy to clauses, adverbs, clarity, and hatred. And indeed, Karen did call, and Karen did concur, and he did close his eyes with great satisfaction. 
The day after that, the brother emailed him some information, apologising for his slow reply to KJ's letter, thanking him for his good opinion and pledging to do anything he could to make his little sister's dream of publication real, then confirming what Roland had already discovered about Marx's past. He said he'd lost touch with her when she went to LA, then she'd returned unexpectedly and had only explained how ill she was two months later. She'd fallen for a person out there. The brother was obviously uncomfortable with his sister's sexuality. But they'd had a fight perhaps over her illness, which she didn't name. Her body had been donated to science, as she wished, with the exception of her hands, which she'd asked to have cremated and scattered in the Los Angeles River. He hadn't done it yet, the scattering. He couldn't afford the flight. And KJ offered to help with this, hoping that he could accompany the brother, hoping that he might lead him to the mystery lover, hoping that he could fill in some of the gaps in the biography. Karen started to make inquiries as well. She called the insurance firm. The branch manager said he'd never heard of anyone called Yoon-hee Marks, but the brother suggested that she may have got into some trouble in LA, and he was a bit hazy on the details anyway. Maybe she'd used a different name. Perhaps she just hadn't wanted to talk about what she'd done there. Certainly she was traumatised when she got back to Philadelphia. She was so secretive. He was sorry he couldn't tell them more. And if you are reading this... There was very little copy editing to be done on the manuscript, and anyway, they wouldn't make changes to a dead woman's book, a book she'd worked on so painstakingly. Who knows what idiosyncrasies they might overlook and what tiny nuances of meaning or affect they might trouble, uh, trample should they dare to alter her impossible sentences, even by slightly changing her punctuation. So they immediately called in or begged favours from authors whom they favoured and who had obviously influenced Marx, like Launiewicz and Munklinger and Sinchenyi and Butler, asking them to give readings of the novel at book fairs and trade shows, and they did. Most notably, Nils Valdemarsson, uh, the Scandinavian expat magical realist linguistic magician who read The Island of Ayaya at AWP. <coughs> Dark, light only, and in it, razor-backed muscle shells dug into heels, the fire slow to catch the sea-rack wood, formed into a pyramid with the mask eventually cackling flames from its mouth before it caught and the sand someone threw in grief to deny the inevitable had no effect (laughs) for there was nothing that could be done for art nor woman and an old friend of Cowron's, who joyously blurbed every Stellatum book without even pretending to take the task seriously, went to the New York Book Fair to read Rather Than a Privileged Area, a section as intelligent as his own work, but much darker, and all expressed surprise that he read it so well. The language being used was finally nothing more than a sign of am ilial commitment devoid of content, adapted merely so the speakers could proclaim their own choices, their own choosing, put themselves forward as the bodies they wished to be, rather than the people they had been forced to become. And following the readings, bloggers hyped the book, fascinated by the command of language and its author's mysterious biography. And public radio reported on readings of Marx's work in bookstores across the country. And finally, she, the phenomenon, though not the book, was written up in the LRB, LARB, TLS, NYRB, NYT. It was unstoppable. Finally, Karen called to say that Random House Trade has suggested a national release as broad as possible, timed for the award season, with the full weight of their resources behind it. Yes, Stellatum could control the editing, the design, everything. They didn't want to interfere with the artistic side of things. That was the small press's specialty. They just wanted to help spread the word. Let's be honest, this could be a real winner, a real earner for a small press. They could do front tables at Barnes & Noble, Amazon Publicity, Goodreads, Giveaways. It'd lead the fiction reviews everywhere. They could work on front pages. We're not asking you to give up any independence. This is your project. We just want to help. (laughs) 
Excitedly, of course, they said yes. Marx could bring back the literary bestseller, could burn off the cheap third-hand uplifting realism. She'd prove that true art could sell just as much when it was given a chance. And if you are reading this, thank you. Thank you, Justin, and thanks to all our writers and for all of you that came out and supported us. I think we're going to go get a drink, because I could use one, uh, across the street. But otherwise, thank you, everyone. You all did a great job, and yay! You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by. And we hope to see you soon.